Hello, and welcome to another episode of Chatter, a podcast from The Gist, with me, Josh Hamilton. Carolyn Steele, the author of Cytopia, How Food Can Change the World, and Hungry City, was our guest on today's show. I first came across Carolyn's writing when her book, Cytopia, jumped out at me in a bookstore in Utrecht, and it proceeded to just blow my mind. The way she's made me rethink our entire relationship with food has been a revelation, and I highly recommend it to anyone who's listening. In the show, we get into why Britain has lost its food culture, reimagining our relationship with food as people and as a society, and why understanding what a good life entails will always lead back to food. If you haven't already and you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast and to our mailing list. And don't forget my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War, is now available for pre-order on Amazon. You'll find the link in the description below. So, here's Carolyn Steele. Sitopia. Sit. Mm. Oh, you prefer that, like, emphasize the sit? I know it's just sitopia. I mean, I'm just saying it's not cytopia, which some people say. Oh, okay. But I mean, you know, what do I know? I don't know what the ancient... I mean, I think the ancient Greeks would have said cytopia, but what Mm. do we know? I mean, if you've you've coined the term, I kind of get... I kind of feel like you get the the right (laughs) to say how it should be pronounced. (laughs) But um, you know, I wouldn't tell French people how to how to say some French slang or. <laughs> yeah, no, indeed, indeed. Mm. Um, but yeah, so right, let, let's 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 go. Uh, let's get going. Um, so, Carolyn, um, thank you very much for for appearing on the show. It's it's an absolute pleasure. Um, Lovely to be here. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so why don't why don't you start by explaining to us what is Cytopia? Or, or perhaps where, where is it? Where would one yeah. find it? Where is it? It's a very interesting question. Well, what it is, I mean, it's, Cytopia is a word that I invented um, probably about 15 years ago now. And the reason I invented it was that I was in, towards the end of writing my first book, Hungry City, How Food Shapes Our Lives, um, and as the subtitle of that suggests, I'd spent seven years researching um, basically how food shapes our lives, you know, the, through the question of how do you feed a city, um, which, you know, if I sort of reel back in time, uh, was a question I found myself asking due to um, a, a long career in architecture um, and in teaching urban design, and I guess a frustration about the fact that Architects tend to talk endlessly about buildings, which I suppose one can forgive them for, because that's kind of, you know, what their job says on the tin. But of course, architecture is actually, you know, it's the art of designing spaces for human habitation. And, you know, it just, it, I guess it always felt to me that, um, you know, basically humans were slightly left out of the, um, out of the equation fairly often. So it, it came from, so my book, Hungry City, came from an attempt to, I guess, inject real life into the architectural discourse. And I had the idea of doing that through the lens of food. Uh, and if you want to ask me how I came up with that idea, we're going to need 30 minutes. We'll never get on to any other question. Anyway, um, that was the idea. And towards the end of the book, I, I was researching utopia, um, another fine Greek word in our language which, as you know, means a good place, but it actually also means no place. So the you in utopia can either be a good place or no place. And I remember finding this very uh, depressing when I discovered this fact, because, you know, basically utopia is our greatest tradition of thinking in a multidisciplinary way about how we should live. 
but it can't exist because it's ideal. Um, so, sorry, it's a very long-winded way of answering your question. But anyway, I thought, gosh, you know, this is terrible because we absolutely desperately need to be able to think in a multidisciplinary way about how we should live. Um, but as I said, I was at the end of this book in which I've been researching the degree to which food shapes our lives um, in ways that you just wouldn't expect, you know, so it's not just kind of our waistlines, which is, I guess, the part of part of our world that we're very aware that food shapes, but it's also the shape of our cities, our landscapes, our climate, our, you know, our politics, our economics, just a vast, vast array of aspects of our lives are shaped by food. So I thought, well, maybe I could make up a word that that means food place. Um, so that's basically what Sitopia is. It's, it's from the Greek sitos, S-I-T-O-S for food, and topos for place. And I did this with the blessing of some friends of mine who, who are probably the nearest thing you can get in the living world to ancient Greeks. They're actually people who advise other people on how to teach ancient Greeks. So they're kind of like meta ancient Greek teachers. And they said, well, ge you know, sort of um, grammatically speaking, um, it ought to be citotopia. But that just sounds ridiculous. So no self-respecting Greek would have ever <laughs> invented the word that daft. So why don't you just make it Zootopia? Um, so that's how I came to invent the word. It means food place. It describes the world as it is shaped by food. And as I said, I, I realised through the writing of this book, Hungry City, that that's in far more ways than you could possibly imagine. In fact, I would say food is ubiquitous in our lives, shaping, you know, pretty much everything. And therefore, it's kind of, you know, to, to, to learn to see the world through the lens of food is a really, really powerful thing to do. Um, and that's why a few years after I'd invented the word, it became necessary to write a book about how we might do this, which is something that you, I understand you sort of discovered lurking in a bookshop in Utrecht rather extraordinarily, which yeah. is why we're chatting now. Well, I was, I was just, I was in the, it's, it was like a, I don't know what you would even call the section because it was a Dutch word, but it just had lots of books about, about climate change and people who have ideas to, to change the world. And, um, that's kind of what I've been, been reading a lot about. So that's just sort of stumbled upon it and it, it sprung out at me and it looked, looked very beautiful. I have it here. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, that's interesting that you taught architecture because I've forever thought that like half of the problem with how our modern cities function, maybe not in the context of food specifically, but was very much about how we've, we've laid them out and how we've designed them. And kind of mm. a lack of design has, has caused a lot of the, the problems that, that we kind of yeah, see, like pollution, absolutely. Um, pollution traffic, uh, urban sprawl, just, just things like that. So it's interesting that you're coming at it from, from that kind of lens. Um, mm. What was your first um, like experience or, or, um, the first time you came into contact with the idea of of a food culture, like when mm. did you first begin to to think about that in terms of in terms of how you, uh -oh, you should you be asking me the um, Oh gosh, well this is really you know the rosebud moment. Um, if that reference means anything to you, sorry, rosebud is the um, it's the sleigh that the hero of Citizen Kane often voted the best film ever made. <laughs> it's the word that he utters on his deathbed and nobody knows what Rosebud is, but it's his childhood sleigh. So it's the thing that's always been there at the bottom of his life, but nobody knew about it. And I think my equivalent to that is probably the fact that my grandparents, my father's grandparents, um, ran a hotel in Bournemouth. 
So I'm on the south coast of the UK. Sorry, I'm assuming you have an international audience um, to whom Bournemouth may not immediately register. <laughs> anyway, it was a beautiful, beautiful hotel. And so as a child, I would just go there, obviously, for kind of all my holidays, every other weekend, because, you know, if you have a hotel in the family, that's kind of what you do. So it's very interesting. I mean, I only realised this sort of as an adult, I guess, that, you know, I grew up in the presence of very, very good food, number one. But number two, sort of understanding what it took to produce good food, because, you know, in the hotel, my favourite place to hang out was the service door. You know, I often call it, you know, the, the, the magical space of the green baize door because the, the service doors were actually covered in green baize um, and to, to reduce the noise. And, and there was this extraordinary transformation that would happen when you went through them, you know, from this backstage world that I, I knew. I mean, that's where we lived as the family, you know, so the kitchens and, you know, sort of steam kind of creating condensation and running down the walls, everything painted sort of a kind of cream emulsion, you know, sort of torn lino on the floor, people shouting, people rushing, amazing smells, you know, just a sort of a chaos, a cacophony and of of work and stuff happening sort of um, in a sort of frantic manner. And then you would go through the swing door into this world of decorum and calm and you know, beautiful carpets and antique furniture and everyone talking in hushed voices and, yes, madam, would you like a bit more broccoli? You know, and all this kind of thing. And I just thought, this is kind of, um, there's something really magic about this. And even as a child, even though I, I clearly didn't think of this in these terms, you know, I would sort of be fascinated by that space of transformation, you know, which, of course, many, many years later, I, as it were, blamed for my interest in architecture, you know, the, the power of the way we order space and who gets to be where, you know, because the guests weren't allowed backstage and only certain members of staff were allowed front stage. And I, as a sort of small child, was allowed in both spaces, which just, it was a magical power. So I think that is where the architectural interest came from. But of course, it's all about food too, you know, because food itself, you know, was being transformed in the kitchen and then moving through this door and being presented as this kind of triumphant thing, you know. But I I knew where it had come from. And in fact, you know, I used to love to hang out in the kitchens and the service spaces. And there was just something very, very powerful and redolent to me of a, a storeroom full of bags of sugar or enormous tins of tomatoes or, you know, the kitchen itself, where, as I said, there was always a huge stock pot boiling away, you know, literally 24-7, um, so I guess the food thing probably came from there too. And then of course, maybe the food and architecture things fused. What, what can I tell you? As I say, it's, it's, it's my rosebud moment. It's mm. sort of, I suspect it probably came from there. Mm. I mean, it's, it's, it's weird sometimes. I don't know if you get this, this feeling, uh, if, if I, for example, when, a, when I started writing this second book of mine, it was just like <laughs> this sort of light bulb moment where everything that yeah. I've been looking at in the last like six months yeah. all suddenly made sense in the context yeah, yeah. of this one thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and even I things that I... thing, except with me, it was 40 years rather than six months, but I also had a light bulb moment, yes. I mean, there's there's definitely like a, a real interesting contrast between the the environment the food of food is created in, like against the environment mm -hmm. that it's it's consumed in, because you have like two different, very different sides of it. You've got like, like you said, the the chaos and cacophony of 
of the energy and life of a of a kitchen in full service like anyone who hasn't hasn't got to experience that definitely should at some point i've been lucky mm. enough to work in in restaurants and and whatnot and and there's there's something just alive about a, a full yeah. like fire in kitchen in the middle of service yeah. um and then like you said it sort of goes out and then into this very sophisticated um arena but like the food is just as important in that arena yeah. i think as it yeah, is yeah. In, in the kitchen because it's it's setting the stage for i don't know whatever conversation you're you're there then gonna have do you have a preference do you prefer to be in the middle of the the chaos in the kitchen or do you prefer oh, yeah. to be enjoying the food no, at the table no no question i like to be in the kitchen it's funny i recently um did another interview um in which somebody which is a brilliant idea by the way they asked me to describe five memorable meals in my life you know and i chose the meals and I kind of only realized halfway through talking to this guy that four out of five of the meals were meals where I cooked them myself, you know, in fairly extraordinary circumstances, one way and another. And I know when I, I mean, okay, so this light bulb thing that you mentioned is really, really interesting. I mean, when I, when I used to go and visit kind of country houses and stuff, you know, as you do, you know, the, the, the state rooms where, you know, where treaties were signed and where there were angels flying around on the ceilings, etc. They always used to bore me rigid. I wanted to go backstage. I wanted to get into the kitchens. That's, you know, and that's where I wanted to be architecturally. And it's where I want to be socially. So if I go to, a, you know, stay in somebody's house or something, or even to a dinner party, I'll go straight into the kitchen and say, is there anything I can chop? Is there anything I can stir? I just want to be there. You know, I, I just, for me, the kitchen is the most exciting space human humans have ever invented, um, especially if they're associated with a, a garden. But, um, you know, and I think, you know, when you talk about your light bulb, oh, that's so, so interesting because for me, um, the light bulb uh, that, that gave me the idea for Hungry City, which is now 20 years ago, by the way, the, the idea for the book was in 2000. It came out of precisely this thing of almost thinking, why am I so bored by formal, this formal study of architecture? You know, I mean, I have colleagues that can literally, you know, stare at a, a Greek portico and reel off the names for all the little twiddly bits on top of the columns. I really don't care. I just, you know, that's just not what interests me at all. But, you know, I get so excited when I see a kitchen. Like, there's just something about it. So, for 20 years, I was wrestling with what is this thing? You know, it's not that I'm not interested in buildings, but but there's something about them that, that really gets me going. And it's just not the formal stuff at all. And I realized in the end, after a long and painful process, it was about our relationship with buildings, if you like. And I then realized that food articulates this brilliantly, because when you have food, life is automatically present, you know, because food is life. You know, so it's kind of as you exactly say, where did the food come from? If it's meat, that was an animal walking in a in a field or in a in a wood or something. You know, if it's vegetables, that was planted in the ground. Where? You know, what was the landscape like? You know, if it's milk, there's a kind of there's a whole scene around that. Did they make cheese? What was the kind of grass were the cows eating? You know, it's just so, so powerful. And then as you say, the I mean, theatrical, of course, is the world, the theatrical drama of a performance, a meal is a performance, you know, it's sort of, even if it's in a house, just, you know, even if it's just you eating, you know, you take raw ingredients that were living, that somebody has killed, or maybe you kill. I mean, sometimes chefs themselves 
do the killing. You know, if it's a live lobster, you drop it in a hot pot or, you know, you stab it in the neck. You know, um, so there's something really profound going on here. This is not playing around. This is life and death stuff, you know. And then you're cooking and then you're presenting and actually the act of eating, which is not only to encounter, I often say, a plate of food is like an emissary from another place, from another landscape. It's like a sort of ambassador for, from the countryside. But also, you know, you are engaging in the most ancient and powerful ritual that we still engage in as humans. Uh, and as I say, it's sort of the food you eat is the future you. You know, we're literally made up of the of the atoms that mm. came in the food that we've eaten through our lives. Because most of us, I mean, by the time you reach adulthood, um, almost none of the atoms in us are the atoms we were born with. They're new atoms made up of all the meals we've eaten. So, you know, this whole saying you are what you know, you are what you eat is is it's literally true. Um, it's not just culturally true. So yes, being in the engine room is like being in the space of magic, in the space of power. Um, is and it's also sort of understanding this understanding, this metamorphic process. Uh, that is, in essence, you know, what it means to be alive. So, yeah, that's where I want to be. So do you have a lot of experience or when you were a child, especially, um, did your parents or grandparents or someone around you grow <laughs> fruit or vegetables? Or like, what was your first like experience like in your life of, of, of that kind of idea of, of growing your own food or even just maybe harvesting? Yeah, no, it's really interesting for me because I grew up in central London. So I had, I mean, the hotel was my experience of food. I had no experience of the countryside at all until I was eight years old. And then I went to Finland because my mother was Finnish and most of her relatives were farmers. So at the age of eight, we went on, I mean, I write about it in the book, as you know, um, in the third chapter, we went to these relatives who lived in very, very remote places um, that were largely self-sufficient. And, you know, I, I was I was kind of introduced to what I now realise, looking back, was actually a very old-fashioned way of farming, because farming in Finland in the 1960s was kind of, it was almost pre-industrial. You know, they were still using horses. They had mixed farms. There were chickens running around. There was, you know, herds of cows, lots of different crops. And I kind of fell in love with the cows a bit. You know, I had a bit of a love-in with the moo cows, um, which kind of has been a lifelong thing. Um, but again, very interestingly, we were served a sort of a, a very rich and to me rather disgusting, actually, liver pudding when we arrived, um, which was sort of a very, very kind of um, ceremonial, traditional dish in Finland. And I only realised literally decades later when I was actually interviewing my cousin for the book that they slaughtered a calf um, because we were arriving, we were guests of honour. You know, so this pudding actually represented slaughter. You know, so, um, and again, ritual, the ritual of hospitality. So, you know, I, I, only, I only pieced that together a lot later. But I would say my, my first experience of farms was at the age of eight in Finland and you know, because we lived literally in the middle of London, I mean, in Kensington and Knightsbridge, believe it or not, which, by the way, we're not nearly as posh as they are now, in case someone suddenly thinks I'm little Lady Mark. Um, it was They were very normally family, normal family neighbourhoods, but, I mean, nobody grew their own food. Um, so I did not have that experience, actually. And again, it's only very recently that I've gained access to a roof space in London and started growing my own food here, that I've discovered the great joy 
of, of sticking a, a seed in some soil and watching it grow into a plant and then a, a great hairy beast giving fruit that you can eat and which is a process that I would say has been transformative um and I really believe the more of us who grew our own food the better the world would be what are you growing <laughs> well I grow this <laughs> it's a bit odd I mostly grow my main crop of the year is um a Danish pickling cucumber called an Asia. okay which is they, they grow like marrows they grow up to about two kilos and I grow them up a south-facing wall on this tiny little reef space. Um, and, you know, my Danish friends said they wouldn't grow at all. But, I mean, I, they, it was my Danish a Danish chef friend, actually, called Trina Hahnemann, who introduced me to these things. And I just got instantly addicted. It's just like, where have these been all my life? I need these things. She said, well, you can't get them in the UK because they're a Danish speciality. So every year, her mum sends me seeds over from Denmark. And then and she sent me her recipe. And I use her recipe um, and in fact, I've just done my second pickling of the year. So I, I, I grow on average probably between seven and 10 kilos of these things a year, which makes, you know, about 10 decent sized jars. And I've probably got most of my friends addicted to them too now. So basically, they're all hanging on for the Asia season to begin. So it really, you know, it does bind me up into the agricultural year. I mean, hilariously, living in the middle of Maribyrn, kind of um you know in a tiny flat with a tiny roof but you can still grow stuff and by the way I also grow tomatoes and lots and lots of herbs and and I have a very very successful fig tree that's in a pot more or less the size of a, a, a sort of normal bucket that you would kind of use to wash the car or whatever and uh I how this thing does it I've no idea but it seems very happy um so that's it. But it's it's it, it it changes your relationship with time when you grow food. And I think that's really important. And again, I write about that in the book, the fact that part of our problems stem from the fact that we we've forgotten how to sync ourselves with with earthly time, which is of course is is one aspect of living alongside nature, which you know is ultimately the the thing that both you and I are interested in, I believe. You know, sort of in other words how do we get out of this mess is kind of the point of writing about all of this stuff, obviously. Yeah, that that, that would pretty that would sum it up pretty well. How to get out of this mess. <laughs> mm, yeah, indeed. <laughs> I haven't, mm. haven't heard anyone put it quite so succinctly. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things that uh, we talked about before we started recording and something that, that really shocked me, um, perhaps you can talk a little more about this, is the extent to which our, the food that we eat now has become so much less nutritious as a result of yep. um, factory farming processes yep. over the past sort of 30, 40 years. Um, some of the things that I've yep. the, the size and scale of factory farming blew my mind as well. Um, I couldn't yeah. find the exact stats about the nutrition before we started, but um, I did find a couple of things that I just wanted to note, like that 99% of US um, like meat was factory farmed. 99% and two thirds of it just the world over. Like that's, that's a shocking, yeah. like shockingly high it level. Shocking. It is shocking. And uh, gosh, there's so much to say. I mean, the first thing to say is that we've spent the last hundred years creating the illusion of a thing called cheap food and cheap food doesn't exist. So this is an illusion. And again, I mean, going back to what I was saying just earlier on about the fact that, you know, cooks, and, and farmers nurture living things and then kill them so that we and we eat in you know these living things that we've killed culturally 
I mean, I say we've killed culturally, meaning not all of us individually do the killing, but, you know, as a society, obviously, anything, food consists of living things. So it's being killed on our behalf and we eat it so we can live. So when you put it like that, it becomes very clear that there isn't, there can, there could never be a thing called cheap food because food is life. So if you cheapen food, you cheapen life. Um, and I don't think we want to go there anytime soon, I would hope. So then the question is, okay, how have we got here? How have we got to this weird place? And as you say, it's through the industrialization of food production, basically. And there are various aspects of this. The first aspect is, if you like, mechanization. You know, so basically, you know, um, using tractors rather than horses, um, getting rid of biodiversity, you know, planting one crop on a huge area um, and basically, you know, sort of, chucking chemicals on the ground in order to replicate the richness that a living soil naturally has. So again, these are long stories, um, but, you know, there was a, a very, very brilliant German chemist called Justus Liebig, who in the uh, 19th century was the first one to work out the key nutrients that plants need, which you may have heard of NPK, nitrogen, potassium and phosphorus. Those are the key ones. They're a bit like our salt, sugar and fat, if you like. They're what kind of... um. They're the main constituents of plant food. Um, and it was, you know, some other German chemists uh, called Karl Harber and, sorry, Karl um, uh, Harber and Bosch. <laughs> Karl uh, Harber and Fritz. No, <laughs> never mind. Harber and Bosch. I can't remember their first name. That's right. Anyway, we'll find them post they, there. Indeed, indeed. Karl um, Harber and somebody Bosch. Anyway, they, uh, they, were working um, in munitions factories, actually working on chemical weapons in the First World War. And then they adapted the, the processes they were using to work out how to atmospherically fix, uh, sorry, fix atmospheric nitrogen. So most of the nitrogen in the... So, so uh, it's all quite complicated, but in essence... Nitrogen is the kind of what creates the hungry gap in our food cycle. It's the most important nutrient for plants. Most of it is in the air and plants can't get it directly from the air. Only one kind of plant can get it, leguminous plants, because they have special nodules on their roots. So basically, the trick is how do you get the nitrogen from the air into a, into a mode that plants can actually take up? And nature does it with by by fixing nitrogen with you know leguminous plants and getting it in the soil and the other way it does it is through nitro, uh, through light, lightning strikes so what the harbor bosch process does is it replicates a lightning strike which as you can imagine uses a heck of a lot of energy but it takes uh, atmospheric nitrogen in the atmosphere and it, it turns it into a solid ammonia which can then be used in uh, nitrogenous artificial chemical uh, fertilizers. And another astonishing stat for you is that two thirds of the people, and sorry, one, well, roughly two fifths, um, it's estimated of people now alive are only alive because they're, because of the car, the Harbour Bosch process, because the, the, basically the, the sort of the chemical revolution in food has allowed that many people to be fed. So, so there's a kind of what I call a kind of reverse Malthusianism going on because you know um, Malthus, as you may remember, um, was a sort of rather gloomy uh, 19th century um, English pastor 
who basically said humans are always doomed to run out of food because basically the more food there is available, the more humans will be born and will survive. And there's always going to be a sort of, you know, population will always outgrow food and there will always be, you know, a, a kind of a crisis. Now, he's often dismissed because people say, um, oh, well, you know, he didn't foresee industrial farming, et cetera, et cetera, because we've increased yields through artificial chemicals and monocultural production, as just described. And by the way, I mean, just to just to have a little aside into the livestock farming thing, um, basically, once once we learned how to produce a surplus of grain, then people had the bright idea of feeding them to animals, the grain to animals, which is an incredibly idiotic idea because it takes about 10 times as much grain to feed as if it's gone through an animal first. It makes the animals sick, so they have to be pumped full of antibiotics, which means that we're actually running out of effective antibiotics. Um, and it uses vast amounts of water, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, so livestock farming is, is ecologically bonkers. Um, but, but also, as I say, what we, all of these things, all of these gains were done without counting any of the consequent losses. So the first consequent loss was discovered when, um, in the 1920s, a huge region of the American Midwest that had been grassland um, which was heard, you know, sort of grazed by about an estimated 60 million bison and and lots of Native Americans. Uh, they were all, the, the bison were killed, the Americans uh, were shoved off into reservations, and this was turned into the world's first uh, industrial monocultural grain, grain fields, you know, sort of literally hundreds and thousands of miles big. Um, and it seemed great, but of course, what actually happened was that the, I mean, the grain you know, was because it's a monoculture, and every year it was planted again. The soils, which had been very rich to begin with, and kept stable by having you know um, basically perennial grass, and being nibbled by the bison to keep it nice and kind of you know the grass nice and short and healthy. And to be pooed on by the bison and animal poo, by the way, is is, is the world's best fertilizer. Um, anyway, uh, that was all disrupted. And to cut a very long story, not that short, <laughs> all the topsoil blew away. Um, and this is the famous Dust Bowl of the 1920s. So this is the beginning of, of the debate between, that still rages today between industrial farming on the one hand and organic farming on the other. So the organic crew are basically saying farming like this, it has short-term gains, but long-term you lose your soil, you know, because basically if you feed plants NPK, it's like feeding your kids nothing but salt, sugar and fat. They grow big, but not necessarily healthy. And really fascinatingly, the the plants, I mean, what, what happens in a healthy soil, a living soil, and Albert Howard, who was the father of the organic movement, really discovered this, is that the, sorry, I mean, I'm, I'm talking for 20 minutes without it. Sorry, anyway, she's waving at me to carry on. Um, what happens is that the, like, all food on earth, all life on earth depends on plants. Why? Because plants are the only living creatures that are able to convert sunlight into energy. How do they do this? Through a process called photosynthesis, that no doubt you were taught in some really tedious biology lesson when you're about six and you're kind of going, yeah, whatever. But I mean, it is absolutely extraordinary. Plants have this magical ability to take sunlight, uh, water, 
and basically uh, turn it into and carbon in the air and turn it into you know into carbohydrates, which of course are sugars, which is the base of the entire food system. Now, um, they grow in soil, <laughs> and all living things need more than just carbohydrates to survive because carbohydrates is just basically energy. Um, and so, where do they get their other nutrients from? Well, they get them from the soil. And what's in the soil is a hugely, hugely complex living set of organisms, everything from worms and you know other insects to uh, just trillions and trillions of microbes, and critically soil fungi. And soil fungi have the capacity to suck essential nutrients off rock, basically. So they get minerals off rock. And so they're, they're, they're full of minerals, but they love a bit of sugar. And plants are full of sugar, but they love a bit of mineral. So what happens is you get what are called mycorrhizal connections under the soil, where literally the roots of the plant attach themselves to the fungi. And then you have a little marketplace happening under the ground where the plants attract, and not just soil fungi, by the way, but other microbes as well that perform a whole series of functions. Uh, they attract them by by putting out their sugar stall, basically, and all the microbes and the fungi come up and they feed happily and hungrily on the roots. And then in exchange, the fungi give the plant essential minerals. So guess what? When we eat the plants, it depends hugely what that plant's been able to eat in its lifetime on what nutrients it can then give us. And so, yes, as you say in the beginning, I mean, there's been these, these shocking studies done that show that, you know, your average carrot in 1940 contains something like, you know, uh, basically three times as much of essential minerals, uh, you know, potassium, or whatever it is, you know, whatever vitamin or mineral it is, um, than the ones that we eat now. So there's been an absolutely dramatic fall off. Um, of the essential micronutrients in vegetables that, that we need to eat because we're not here's the here's the key fact when you feed a plant npk it's fast food for plants it thinks you know it kind of gets a bit lazy like we get when we eat nothing but highly processed food or hamburgers we get a bit yeah you know kind of so couch potato we the same happens to the plant the plant doesn't bother to to make the mycorrhizal connections. It doesn't build a big root system. It doesn't make the mycorrhizal connections. So it doesn't get the essential micronutrients and minerals from the soil that we need and that it needs. So it gets weak and it gets it gets sickly. It might grow big, but it's it's very susceptible to disease and so on. So feeding MPK to plants is like feeding fast food to your kids. It's exactly the same phenomenon. It narrows the band of essential nutrition and it weakens health. So this is why farming organically is important, not just for the plants, but for us, and also, of course, for carbon emissions, because basically, you know, a huge number of carbon emissions and, and other things like pollution, chemical pollution, loss of biodiversity, I mean, all the things that threaten us now um, are associated with industrial farming. So, so going back to organic farming is not a question of doing something nice, you know. I mean, it's true that very nutritional food tastes better, but it's not just a question of let's go back to the way of eating so the food tastes better, you know, darling. It's actually a question of saving the planet. It's actually a question of re-establishing the balance 
you know, the balance of living ourselves with nature. Um, so it's, it's absolutely fundamental to our survival, basically. That, that was a long answer. Yeah, that, that, don't yeah. don't worry. This is this is um, this is what I love I love podcasts for. You know, you, you can you can give you can give that that long answer if you need to, and it's fine. Um, it's uh, you, you've you've potentially just illustrated the the world's first example of free trade. So I'm sure those uh, free trade marketeers will be loving you for that. Um, exactly. It's it's interesting that the the there's a parallel actually between that that metaphor you use about feeding NPK to plants and feeding um, fast food to children that actually maps onto a book I've just finished reading um, called Digital Minimalism by Cal Newport, mm. and he essentially uh, is putting forward the idea that little like low quality like hits of of dopamine um, from technology is essentially like stunting our ability to mm. enjoy lengthier things like reading a book or just just like normal things yeah. and there's there, there's there's yeah. there's definitely an interesting parallel there in in feeding totally feeding ourselves mm. little doses of of social media is is essentially the equivalent of giving npk to to plants um totally parallel yeah i mean it's very interesting i mean as you know I begin the book with a weird encounter that I had with a Shell executive at a TED conference, <laughs> um, so, which is worth talking about, actually, because I think our relationship with technology is absolutely fundamental. I mean, if if we're having this podcast at all, because we both believe that we're in a deep, deep crisis and we need to really find, I mean, you know, for me, food is a lens for... Um, the best lens that I've come across for reimagining our idea of a good life, which, which is really what the sort of the aim of the book is, then I, you know, there are a whole set of things that, that sort of come into that inquiry. Um, because clear, clearly, a good life, the good life that we're aiming for at the moment can't be good because it's destroying us and it's destroying the planet. So clearly, it's not good in all senses, is it? Um, and, you know, as I say, a huge element of that is comes down to our relationship with technology. And as I say, I began. The, the current book, Cytopia, um, the, the introduction, it sort of, it ended up being this encounter that I had with this Shell executive at a TED conference. And it was the end of the conference. And I don't know whether you've ever been to a TED conference. I haven't, Probably fairly unlikely because you either have to speak at one or pay a vast amount of money to go to one. So they're, they're quite extreme categories in either case. But nevertheless, um, they're five days long. And there's probably about, you know, 50 or 60 speakers in those five days. And they range from kind of people who've swum across the North Pole to have discovered black holes to, you know, just all sorts. And so it's a pretty extraordinary range of people speaking normally. And anyway, they're, so they're exhausting is the point. They're completely and utterly exhausting. So I was slumped on a beanbag in the foyer of this, this conference, just more or less just gulping for air. And this Shell executive came up to me and he sort of said, you know, he introduced himself and he said he's very senior. And he had come to the conference looking for ideas and he hadn't found any. And did I have any? Because we were facing a massive crisis as a species and he had millions and millions of pounds to invest if, if I had a good idea. So I was just thinking, OK, that's really weird because I feel like I've just spent the last five days listening to a whole kind of parade of good ideas so that's really weird that he hasn't heard any um and I thought okay well what would I really what would I say to this guy you know what, what do I actually think and I thought and I thought well and I said to him 
I think the problem we face as a species is that we're incredibly technically enabled. You know, we can do incredible things. We can land, you know, satellites on comets for goodness sake. But we've forgotten to ask the big questions as to why we're doing any of this. So I think we've got a philosophy deficit. And I think, you know, we need to learn to ask big questions again. And it was amazing watching his face because he clearly wasn't expecting this. I think he was expecting me to say that the answer was algae, you know, or phytoplankton or, you know, anyway, sort of something that he could sort of set up a project on. And he was puzzled. And then he actually got angry, you know, and it's almost like you could see the bolts on his neck standing out. He said, we don't have time for this. We are seven billion on the planet. You know, we are running out of resources. There is no time for philosophy. We must act. You know, I thought, whoa, okay, that's interesting. And then I thought, okay, here's something super interesting. Where we are asking the same question. You know, we're both at this conference because we both recognize that we're in deep doo-doos and we need to change the way we behave. But we're looking at it from such different positions, you know. And I said, but you know, it's kind of weird. I'm not anti-technology, but he appears to be anti-philosophy, you know, and of course we need both, you know. Um, so that became the introduction to my books. I think the huge part of what, what we need to do is we need to recalibrate our relationship with technology. It's not enough just to say, oh, wow, we can, you know, we can produce cheap meat by, by feeding animals grain and pumping them full of antibiotics. I mean, yes, we can do that, but it's a really, really bad idea. You know, because it's bad for the cows, it's it's cruel, it's it's just I mean, it's literally highly, highly dangerous because it's it's reducing our pool of effective antibiotics. And God knows, here we are in the middle of a zoonotic pandemic, you know, hello, wake up. Um and it's hugely contributing to climate change, you know, because basically you know, shifting from a plant-based to a meat-based diet, as I'm sure almost all of your audience will already know by now. But by the way, this was t- total news 20 years ago. Nobody was talking about this stuff. Um, you know, it's just a much more costly way to eat. So if we're going to sort of live well in the future, it makes sense that we have to eat a lot less meat and dairy, not a lot more. Um, and we can go into how much and all the rest of it. I mean, because I believe when you're, uh, 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 an equally critical thing is that we have to move towards farming organically because the use of chemicals in the ground is what's mostly contributing towards the loss of biodiversity, which is arguably a bigger crisis than climate change. It's partly caused by climate change, but, you know, it's all associated, it's all part of the same thing. You need animals in the food system if you're going to farm organically because basically, I mean, as Albert Howard, who I briefly mentioned earlier, how you know, but he is the father of the modern organic movement, as he noted, Mother Nature is, is the best farmer in the world because she, you know, he's taught like this, um, she, you know, she creates maximum fecundity in any location, in a vast variety of locations, basically by conserving nutrients and and through diversity and complexity and synergy and all the rest of it. So he was the first one who postulated on this mycorrhizal connection that we now know is absolutely fundamental to plant health. So, and our health, therefore. So, um, we need animals, but but you know. So my problem with the way the way we tend to think in relation to technology, um, which is why, by the way, I also hate the whole sort of how are we going to how are we going to feed the world question. I mean, this is just so mal formulated on every level. Who's we to begin with? 
you know. Um, do you know what I mean? It's just, it just, it just really, really upsets me. It's just, it's completely formulated. And anyway, you know, feeding the world is not the point. How are we, you know, the human species, going to thrive and you know and have some fighting chance of making it to the end of this century without complete meltdown? Answer: you know, We have to live differently. Living differently and eating differently are so intertwined, it's the same question. So then you say, okay, well, what is it? How do we want to live? What can we imagine that a good life in a zero carbon, you know, friendly to nature, friendly to fellow humans, friendly to your fellow non-humans, what might that life look like? And if you, if you ask that question, almost immediately, you are also asking the question of how are we going to eat? But it's that way up. It's not the other way up. So you say, okay, well, clearly, you know, we're not going to chuck chemicals on the ground anymore. Clearly, we're not going to feed, you know, literally two thirds of the grain, sorry, one third at the moment, but rising constantly, one third of the grain harvest to animals, you know, when we could be eating it, you know, so um, there's a series of no brainers, but it also then starts to become a question of, you know, what is our relationship with technology? Just because we have, the ability to do X, Y, and Z, do, does that mean we, we should do X, Y, and Z? I mean, we need to ask these questions. And by the way, I mean, you can technology brilliantly to help you farm with nature. You know, you don't have to just use it to farm against nature or to try and beat nature into submission. So it's just a recalibration of so many relationships um, that are necessary. And I can't even remember what your original question was now. But it seemed to be to do with our relationship with technology, wasn't mm. it? Sorry. No, it was. And honestly, something that's that's really struck me um, with a lot of the reading and research that I've been doing and just sort of speaking to people about about the lockdown and, and sort of things they've realized in, uh, during that time is that... Yeah. Part... Oh, I remember it was about kids and their little little hits. Yes. Of, yeah, 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 yeah. I want to come back to that because I'm super interested in that. Sorry, mm. but carry so, on. No, yeah. Like there's... Um, uh, th- this, this kind of ties in quite well, but that we... Most of the books that, that I have read and the people that I've spoken to have, there's there's this constantly recurring idea of like a lack of fulfillment and humanity yeah. in in modern exactly. life, like in every exactly. single aspect. And and your book does a fantastic sort of job of, of drawing out and teasing out a lot of the, 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 the parts of life that are, are lacking that. But everything mm. from... Like you said, like we were talking about the the relationship with how we use social media and our phones and, and how present we yeah. are in conversation to yeah. um, you, you referenced David Graeber actually very briefly in your book, Rest in Peace. Um, I was so... I know, I'm so upset. So sad I mean, to hear. he was one of the great ones. He was, he really was one of the great mm. ones. Yeah. And but yeah, his bullshit jobs, for example. Just, yeah. just yeah. Uh, like highlights <laughs> another area in which people sort of feel unfulfilled because their job seems meaningless and... Um, yeah, Cal Newport actually prescribes a lot of things in in his book as working with your hands, and that's definitely um, yeah part of something you talked about in in being in touch with the world, and that there okay. are uh, the the two hundred thousand yeah. or seven hundred thousand or ten million years of evolution, however far you want to go back, whatever you want to say, this is our starting point. Our intelligence evolved through our manipulation of tools. So so hand intelligence and, and brain intelligence are totally and utterly linked. Mm-hmm. That's completely correct. I mean, okay, this is you've you've prompted me to say something really important. And it's about this question of what is a good life. 
a good life is not just one that doesn't impact on the planet disastrously or on your fellow humans and non-humans disastrously. It's clearly one that is fulfilling. And to go back to your thing about how kids' brains are being totally disrupted by this kind of little micro doses of pleasure. I mean, one of the most interesting books I read on this, and I mean, it's really interesting. It's 50 years old now, but all the insights are correct. It was Tibor Skitovsky's um, Joyless Economy book, The Joyless Economy. And he's really operating right at the beginning of insights into the brain and basically pleasure centers and how they work. But it's precisely what you say. It's about pleasure and indeed joy being something that you slightly, you have to work up to, you have to work for. So, you know, and, and basically this is why, you know, um, if you if you basically have eaten too much, you know, Christmas is classic, you know, Christmas, you know, everyone bakes cakes and they kind of make these sort of eight different kinds of joints and, you know, and you're absolutely lying on the sofa stuffed having just, you know, eaten enough food to feed a family for a week. And somebody says, oh, would you like a mince pie? You go, no, I would not like a mince pie because you're just, you're over, overstimulated, you're oversated. And exactly as with food, with other things too. So, um, I write a lot in the book about um, kind of skills, you know, and actually the, the joy that acquiring a skill over many years brings us, you know, and again, this is to do with our hands. So learning a musical instrument, learning to make furniture, learning to cook, of course, is one that we can all do. And, and that's why, again, food just presents itself as such an obvious way to go. I mean, I often... If I'm feeling stuck or, or bored or just uninspired, I often just go and start cooking. And literally the act of chopping an onion for me is almost mesmeric. It's, it's the one physical craft that involves using our hands that actually is available to all of us. Um, and yes, there's absolutely evidence now that, that, that young people's brains are being interfered with by the fact that they're sort of, you know, their relationship with, with stimulus is kind of out of sync. You know, they're not having to exert effort to get reward. And so reward just becomes, you, you do, you OD, and your, your brain stops responding to it. So you, it's like an addiction. You need more and more, uh, and you get less and less. And so I think step away from the phone um, would be one thing I would say, and pick up an onion and a knife and start making some food, you know. Um, but it's fundamental. So if we're going to reimagine a good a, a good life for many, many people, clearly... Uh, we have to rethink what everybody does all day, you know, and 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 I, I find it really depressing listening. I mean, COVID, as you rightly say, has been a fascinating, I mean, it's a tragedy, but it's also an extraordinary, you know, social experiment that no government on earth would ever have dared to put into place. And, nope. and so many, <laughs> no, and it wouldn't be a good idea. No. But so many fascinating things have come out of it. And one is... The, the people, of course, not everybody, because not everybody's had the opportunity, but those who've been stuck at home with the capacity to do it have been thinking, well, I've got to eat three times a day. I may as well enjoy it. You know, and they've actually been getting into baking bread and making pickles and cooking with their kids and all this stuff, taking time for food. And of course, it's unbelievably satisfying. And this leads to an insight that I also quote in the book, um, which is Epicurus's insight, Epicurus, you know, writing, you know, whatever it is, two and a half thousand years ago. But he says, you know, you may as well get pleasure out of the stuff you have to do. This is to paraphrase, obviously. <laughs> but, you know, embrace the necessary because you've got to do it anyway. And also our bodies. This is the really interesting thing. Our bodies are wired up 
to get pleasure from the necessary. You know, so we get pleasure from eating. Why? Because we have to eat, you know. So instead of kind of putting the, the, the what I call the low-hanging fruit of pleasure, which is, you know, things like food, things like exercise, things like, you know, exercising any kind of skill, whether it's football, whether it's, you know, playing the violin, doesn't matter what it is, cooking. Um, and just focusing on that, we then get less reliant on the fake pleasures of consumerism, which are driving this kind of whole engine that's driving us off the, off, you know, an ecological cliff. So, I mean, I consume less, I mean, I, I, I you know, I, I eat a lot <laughs> of good food, but I mean, I consume less, um, sort of, I'm less interested in acquiring objects than, than most people I know. Uh, and it's interesting to me that that's the case, you know, because it's just not where I get my pleasure from. You know, I mean, I, if I, if I buy something like a coat or a, a bag or a, a, a saucepan, I want it to last me for life. Because if it does the job, it just does the yeah. job. Do you know what I mean? It's not. Um, so for me, it's shifting our economy away from the idea that, you know, every two years you have to have a new washing machine or you're not happy. I mean, this is just such utter bullshit, talking of bullshit. Um, but actually, let's get our joy from things that we can do that don't harm anything, which is, a, which is developing personal skill. And we need a complete revolution in the workplace as well for this. You know, I mean, nobody who works in an Amazon fulfillment center can have a good life. Sorry. I mean, that, that, that's because that's just like the ultimate bullshit job. And of course, these people who are underpaid and they're abused and they're not required to use any intelligence or skill, very little. You know, they're basically human versions of what a machine could probably do better um, and indeed, machines are probably going to get be invented shortly that will do that. So we have a massive, massive occupation crisis. Yeah, I will say occupation crisis rather than work crisis, you know, because there's, you know, doing stuff and producing stuff meaningful, that's meaningful in the course of a day is essential to a good life. And, you know, if, we, if machines are going to take over the jobs that we used to do, then we have to, you know, literally come up with or create a world in which other meaningful things can be done that, that will give us satisfaction at the end of the day. And by the way, food is the one thing we all have to consume every day. So this is why reinvesting value in food, which is one of my proposals, makes so much sense. Because feeding people, frankly, is about one of the most rewarding things anyone can do. And that's not going away. So let's value it and let's rehumanize it. Because um, that would be a big step in the right direction. Um, but yes to all of the above that you were saying. I mean, yeah, there's there's definitely a, a joy that, that, that people will never, ever, ever sort of get tired of, of, you know, having everyone, all your friends around for dinner and making a great meal and mm. then they all enjoy it. That's, that's, yeah, I definitely, I definitely want to try and sort of carve my, uh, carve out uh, a way in my life to be more like uh, curious, having lunch with, with all my friends every day. That would, that's the, the dream for retirement with my, uh, my commune that we want to set up <laughs> um, that is i mean that's when sitopia approaches utopia frankly yes you know and that's what epicurus did epicurus lived outside athens and he just had a big table and a big garden and everyone was welcome and it was just all about grow the food cook the food eat the food and talk i mean that is my idea of a good life frankly and i think it lies at the bottom of all of our good lives actually i, mean, I can't i can't really i can't really argue with that um, some something else you kind of kind of mentioned is um, like freeing ourselves from from the grasp of of 
of money and that's again something that that somehow having having read a book on how financialization has has um taken mm. taken hold of the british economy is somehow just as almost relevant to to food as as some of the things you mentioned in your book it's it's shocking how it really comes comes round circ, uh, in a in a circle to yeah, yeah. to be in so so yeah, you've got so much relationship to to everything else. Like one of the stories I really enjoyed um, was the I think it was an Italian olive farmer, um, and he yeah. just worked yeah. by himself, I think. And and the <laughs> yeah. this guy came up to him and and asked, you know, why don't you hire some people and sell the olives? And exactly. the guy asked why, and he goes, well, you know, you could do anything you want. And there he is, sat with a with a glass of ouzo or, or something under his veranda, and says, what do yeah, you mean? So exactly I can actually Greek. So yeah, he's Greek. It is exactly. Sit here and drink my ouzo in, <laughs> in my garden. Yeah. Exactly. No, it's, it's absolutely brilliant, brilliant story, as you say. And it just, I think, um, and this is the, the, the middle chapter of the book. And, you know, it, it's absolutely fundamental. I mean, by the way, you know, I mean, the reason I love food as a lens for seeing the world is that it does connect absolutely everything. Um, and that's why the book took eight years to write, because, you know, it's just like, oh, God, now I've got to now I've got to look at the structure of the brain. And then I've got to look at soil. And now I've got to look at economy. You know, it's, it's just everything is connected. But just to say that, you know, we evolved as a species through the shared problem of how to eat. And the the shared meal is basically the first and best ever invented economy. We're really, really good at sharing food. Because you know we've done it since we before we were human, and and you know if you're if you live in a band and you know and a band is how we evolved, so that's a very very small group of probably about thirty individuals or something where everybody knows everybody else, everyone's probably related to everybody else. It's like a big family. Then it is you know every meal is like Christmas dinner, you know with everyone pretty much you know or related to around the table, and we're and we, it's just such an amazing feeling of being in this together. And our bodies respond to this. And again, modern technologies are allowing us to sort of see what goes on in the brain when we eat the same food as other people. And it's, there's these amazing mirroring responses in our hormones and all sorts of stuff that reinforce the fact that we feel bonded. So I often say, you know, if you imagine that a, a table laden with food and, and everyone around it who needs to eat, um, you know, and that they're all eating well and we're sharing food together, that is my favourite metaphor for good society. Now, the thing is, of course, it's not 30 people you know. It's seven and a half billion people, most of whom you don't know. Plus, of course, it's all the non-humans who also need to eat. So, but it's still a shared meal. You know, there's still only so, so much food to go around. And we still, you know, we have to sort of somehow tap into this, this deep knowledge that we have, this, this generosity that we have when we share. Because when we share food... We intuitively understand that holding back ourselves, not taking everything for ourselves, makes the tribe flourish. And the tribe flourishing is also necessary to our flourishing. So it makes this idea of sharing, we intuitively understand it as a social process. And I often say, okay, now imagine that somebody leant forward, you know, even someone you know and like, and they just went, oh, I'm going to have all this lovely food for myself. Yeah, nobody would do that because they, it would be death. They, it would, they would lose all their friends. But that's precisely what we do with money. You know, so I think a lot of our ills uh, that we face are to do with the fact that we've gone from sharing food, which we're brilliant at, 
to sharing through money, which we're really, really bad at. I mean, we don't talk about it. Nobody owns up to how much they're, they're earning. Everyone gets greedy. And as Aristotle warned two and a half thousand years ago, and I do tend to find the Greeks were onto quite a lot of good stuff. Um, he said, you know, the pursuit of money never results in happiness because there is no such thing as enough money, you know, because it has no basis in reality. Whereas, ironically, oikonomia, which is, you know, household management, which is basically feeding the city and the kind of local material-based economy based on food, this has a natural balance. Because when the landscape is feeding the city, there's a natural balance there. So, and I find it very ironic that we've adopted the word oikonomia, which means household management, for our word economics. Because actually, the economics we really have is crematistica, which is the pursuit of money for its own sake. So that is why I'm proposing reinvest. Sorry, I mean I'm not. I was just, not, I was just thinking, thinking about the the, the, the the extra word. The... <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, the, 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 I mean, and I almost think yeah, crematistica is such a weird word as you can see why we didn't adopt it to mean economics. But um, <clears throat> it would have been more accurate to what we actually do. Um, so I think a lot of our problems come from the fact that we've forgotten that real wealth lies in the land. And I actually believe we urgently need land reform, which means wealth reform, because most wealth is bound up in property now. So that is something I'm proposing in the book. And uh, and I also believe that we need to reinvest the true value of food in food. So we have to, to stop treating food as though it's cheap. And if you put the true cost of a, you know, a hamburger raised on beef that came from some recently cleared rainforest, you know, that should cost two hundred dollars and not the maybe $2 that we pay for it. So it gives you some idea of how warped the landscape is. But yes, I mean, I think um, we have to absolutely disassociate ourselves with, I mean, really, the, you know, the whole capitalist dream, which is the, the, the pursuit of wealth, stands for the good. Um, I mean, A, it doesn't stand for the good. I mean, as you and I know, I mean, you and I live our lives... You know, we, we need enough money to get by, but, we're, but the pursuit of money is not why we get up in the morning. Pursuing ideas, pursuing a sense of worth, pursuing a, an idea that, you know, you're making the world a better place somehow by what you do, whatever it is. That's what gives us satisfaction and joy, not buying yet another designer handbag. You know, I, I just don't understand. So, so wealth does not equal joy, although it, to listen to the rhetoric from our politicians, you would think it does. And the other critical thing to say about capitalism is that, you know, when it was set up 250 years ago by thinkers like Adam Smith and so on, they recognised that all wealth ultimately comes from nature, but they thought that came for free because they couldn't conceive that we could ever run out of nature. You know, so now we know we are running out of nature. So that's another massive, massive issue. We, we have to stop treating as E.F. Schumacher I think one of the greatest economists, indeed one of the greatest thinkers who've, who've, you know, of the modern era, as he said, you know, one of the greatest mistakes of the modern era is to think that the problem of production has been solved, which means, oh, we just dig the stuff out of the ground and it's fine. It hasn't, you know, and he, he actually argues that we need to treat nature as sacred, you know, which I think is, is the way to go. Um, so it's massive, massive shifts. Which, which will meet a lot of resistance, which is why, as I say, I think my job as an architect, or shall we say resting architect, I stopped actually building buildings. But what I do do is imagine what the world could be like. You know, what a world in which I call it a landscape for human flourishing. 
So a landscape in which humans can flourish would look like, and of course we can't flourish without non-humans. So whenever I say humans, I'm also talking about non-humans, i.e. plants and animals and microbes and soil fungi. But, you know, imagine that landscape and what does it look like? And what does an everyday, you know, what does an average day in the life of a future human, you know, who's living in balance with the planet, who's living in an equitable society, what does that actually look like? And if you start imagining that and work outwards, amazingly, it's doable. There are enough resources in the world for us to live like this. And by the way, people would be much happier. And again, this is another extraordinary insight of lockdown, you know, because of many of the things I'm arguing for, ironically, have happened during lockdown. So a more locally based life, taking more time, you know, spending more time with the kids, access, you know, contact with nature. I mean, it's really old. It's almost spooky, the degree to which that's been the case. Um, but, and, you know, only 9% of Britons want life to go back the way it was before. Wait, hang on, hang on, go, go back. What, what was that stat? 9%? So there was an amazing survey done by the Food and Countryside Commission during lockdown. And they were asking people, I mean, mostly about their relationship with food, actually. So it was super, super fascinating. 42% of people interviewed said that they valued food more as a result of lockdown because they were actually enjoying cooking and eating with their kids and so on. 39% said they were cooking more from scratch. 85% said that they want, I don't know, I know these figures, but it was such an interesting survey. 85% said that they wanted some of the, the lifestyle changes that they'd experienced during lockdown to remain post-lockdown. So, you know, working from home, etc. And only 9% said they wanted life to go back exactly the way it was before. Wow. I mean, this is mind-boggling. It's really mind-boggling. But it's also an amazing opportunity, actually. You know, if we had politicians with real vision, they could say, okay, we're going to have to reinvent what cities are for because clearly they're not going to be about the kind of, you know, I mean, maybe in 20, 30 years down the road, there will be something like the kind of the hustle bustle we know now. But there's, it's never going back on the same trajectory. And land rents are going to fall in cities, which is a really, really, really good thing. Because they were, it was getting crazy. It was getting insane. It was getting to the point where you had to own an oil well in order to live within about five square miles of the, you know, of the centre of big cities like London. I mean, this was insanity. So if the bottom falls out of the economy in that respect, that's an entirely good thing in my view. But it needs to be matched by really, really visionary planning and visionary kind of imagining of what a good future could look like. And it has to include land reform and it has to in include a wealth tax. Mm, I like, I mean, I'm looking at a lot of different ideas for the way people want to want to fund mm. this, this revolution. Um, that's something I haven't quite decided on yet, but that does. Yeah. That study is well, join the super club. I mean, join, join the club, including every economist writing now. I mean, it's, it, it is the great debate of our mm. time. I think how we can move from the capitalist system that's inherently about inequality. It generates inequality. That's not you and me saying that. That's Joseph Sticklitz. That's Thomas Piketty. That's Kate Raworth. I mean, that's every, you know, kind of non, non-entrenched, forward-thinking progressive economist is, is onto this stuff now. We know this stuff. How do we get... I mean, this is why I got so interested in the anarchists, by the way, which, I mean, by, I, I was sort of slightly surprised by myself. I mean, I didn't see this coming, but I mean, the, 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 you know, Jean-Pierre Proudhon's 60-page-long sorry, sorry, essay 
what is property should be on every school reading list. It's it's the most profound, life-changing, essential little tract ever written. And it basically just blows capitalism out of the water. Because it basically says that, you know, long-term ownership of property is unfair. And it's on the basis that, you know, we all need to share resources. You know, and again, this has been written in 1840, which is incredibly forward-thinking. I mean, I think, again, it's time has come. So instead of proprietorship, which is outright ownership forever and ever on men, we need possession, which is basically, okay, you need to farm, have the land, but pay, pay the community a land rent. And when you die, that goes back in the pool, if you like, and maybe somebody else uses it. And maybe your kids take it over and that's also fine, but then they pay the community a rent. It's not, I will own this for perpetuity. Um, and he uses the brilliant, brilliant analogy, which which is so resonant today. He says, imagine that, you know, a group of you are living on an island, a smallish island, and you're all kind of getting by fine. And then there's a shipwreck nearby and people are desperately swimming ashore. What are you going to do? You're going to hit them over the head with a spade and say, sorry, we're full up. I mean, or that's probably not, the- no, it's not a good time to ask the British public that question. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, the British public notoriously uh, have a very, very strong reaction to this question. But I mean, it's what's happening. No, 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 but that's precisely the point. It's literally happening mm-hmm. now. It's literally happening. And as humans, we can't just say, go away and drown. Of course, we can't say that. I mean, of course, we need to confront this at an international level. I mean, it's a huge, huge problem. But why are these people fleeing? You know, because they have war in their country. Why have they got war in their country? Because they've got despots in charge. Why have they got despots in charge? Because well, we sponsored them? Sorry. <laughs> well, 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 partly because we sponsored them. Yes, that's absolutely true. But also partly because, you know, despotry tends to come out of an unst- a, 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 a society that's failing materially. You know, in other words, if everybody can feed themselves easily, if everybody's got land and stuff, they tend to just get on with it. You know, people get into criminality, people get into despotry and so on, when for some reason they don't have a home, you know, and, and they they turn to the bad and then the bad becomes a way of surviving. So, you know, it's, there's no accident that it's the non-prosperous countries in the world that that, that have, you know, deeply despot, despotic um, governments. I mean, what's disturbing is that, the, the, you know, it's the pres- prosperous countries are starting to get... Uh, pretty despotic uh, leaderships as well, and this is really, it, but it's it's symptomatic. I mean, I like it's if, symptomatic of the fact that capitalism is if failing. You would, if you would mm. ask me, I would ask what prosperity uh, means. It, b- being one of the the, I think either the fifth or sixth wealthiest country, or the fifth or sixth richest country in the world, with fourteen million people living in poverty and one of the highest levels of inequality in the world. Kind yep. of suggests that yeah, prosperity doesn't exist in, in, well, I mean, for the vast majority yeah, of people. Well, it does exist, but it's very unequally distributed. And this is the problem. And this is what capitalism creates. It creates it, profoundly unequal societies. And I mean, if we look at predominantly the United States, the United Kingdom over the last 40 years, they were, as it were, the lead neoliberal nations. You know, so both countries in the 1970s, um, deregulated everything, basically. They both read Friedrich Hayek, you know, he wrote the Road to Serfdom, which is basically like the Bible of, of neoliberalism. And they both bought this this um, idea that, I mean, it, it's fascinating, but it's essential to understand where we are now. And um, the argument goes that in order for a, a market to work effectively, I mean, again, it sort of, it buys into Adam Smith's idea that 
you know, wealth creation is a, is a sort of inherent good, you know, so how do we create wealth? Um, and he basically says that the, the, the best way of creating wealth is to have a, a completely free, unhindered market. The reason he says that is because he's witnessed what happened after the First World War, you know, basically when, you know, there, there was a hideous kind of, um, well, there was hideous war, <laughs> which is already bad. And then there was um, hideous economic collapse after the war, because basically the the victorious nations impoverished the vanquished nations, and and basically they had hyperinflation, you know, to the point where notoriously in you know Berlin, for example, you had to sort of have a wheelbarrow of banknotes to buy a loaf of bread and so on and so on. So complete collapse of the economy. So he said the reason that he believed that the reason that collapse happened was because the government interfered with the market. He said, if you leave the market completely free, then, you know, what is valuable naturally acquires its true value because, you know, there's sort of basically there's enough people competing to buy it sort of thing. And Reagan brought into that and Thatcher brought into that. And we've had 40 years of the neoliberal experiment. It turns out that what actually happens, and I mean, there's another really important thing to say here as well, um, which is that, you know, when Adam, Adam Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations, which is like the foundational document of capitalism. He was also working on another book called The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And The Theory of Moral Sentiments, which he considered to be his greater book, by the way, is about how human beings naturally care about other people and how a good life is essentially to do with feeling feeling good about your place in society, in essence. People forget this. So, when he was writing in the 1750s, he couldn't possibly imagine what was actually going to happen down the track, which is something that another of the greatest books ever written, in my view, Carl Polanyi's Great Transformation, which I which I blew my mind when I read it when I was an architecture student about 40 years ago. Let's not go there. Um, basically, uh, it's about how in order to free, in order to have a market society, to free the market up, you have to destroy the person-to-person -person connections that normally determine how people live. So before industrialization, there was no such thing as a free market. It didn't really exist. You know, it was basically, um, you know, a, a sort of series of very, very complex, I mean, not necessarily ideal, by the way, but very complex interpersonal relationships that were both social and monetary. And basically, those had to be blown away in order to allow the market to, you know, to function freely. And as Polanyi very, very memorably says, humans had to be commodified into labour and nature had to be commodified into rent, you know, in order to allow the industrial project to take place. So it's a brutal process. And we know that the Industrial Revolution was brutal for those who experienced it. So what Hayek's arguing for, in a way, is, is sort of going back to that. You know, I mean, famously, Homo economicus is a sort of commodified human who's supposed to only react to market, you know, to price and only care about price. Um, and of course, what happens if you leave the market to its own devices, anything like, shall we say, rural bus services immediately become uneconomic because they don't earn money. So say, well, we clearly won't have those, you know, um, and we won't have something like a national health service. I mean, anything, you know, we don't have free education because those things don't make money. If only money counts, then only private investment survives. And of course, as we know, we've seen an absolute erosion of the, you know, of the welfare state in favour of uh, pri privatisation of everything. And at the same time, a, a, a smaller and smaller increment of people getting richer and richer. 
I mean, we now have a more unequal society than Britain had at the height of the uh, empire. No I mean, that's just way. mind-boggling. Isn't it mind-boggling? But we've got there. So, yes, it is not working. And, yes, prosperity, as I say, we are the sixth richest nation in, you know, in, the, in the world at the moment in the UK. And, yeah, as you say, we have two million people using food banks. You know, we have vast unemployment. I mean, I think... You know, so, 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 and so we have desperate, you know, sort of, <laughs> okay, I'll have to, you, I'll have to watch my language. If you have populist governments who lie consistently and promise people silver bullet, la, 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 rainbow, you know, gold pot at the end of the rainbow, I'm not going to deliver any of it because they, they, they basically, they don't have a genuine, the kind of genuine social revolution necessary to deliver what they're talking about, which is, I'm afraid, radical wealth redistribution and, and land reform. You know, if the wealth all stays where it is, it is undeliverable. So COVID's really interesting in relation to all of this because uh, I think, you know, it's blown plan A out of the water and plan B is going to be really interesting. I mean, you know, I'm, I've got my sort of, I've got my seats booked, you know, in the theatre of what do far-right Tory, Tory governments do when they can't just kind of borrow and tax their way out of trouble anymore. And they've offered a whole bunch of people a good life that has just become undeliverable. That's going to be an interesting, interesting one to watch. There's an answer for them, by the way. They can't see it. And um, the answer is, be honest. Sorry, I mean, step one, actually be honest. Step two, say, okay, you know, that whole thing about endless growth and capitalism and blah, that's dead. That was so 20th century. We kind of lied to you and pretended we could keep it going through another century, but we couldn't because climate change is catching up with us and extinction is catching up with us. So do you know what? Here is a new deal and it's a totally different vision of a good life. And we're going to give you land to thrive on and we're going to skill you up. And we're going to basically do things totally differently. And you're not going to kind of fly on holiday three times a year. And you're not going to buy a new car every two years. But you are going to farm and you're going to make stuff and you're going to mend stuff and you're going to share stuff. And we're going to have amazing community facilities. And, you know, we're going to rediscover what a good life that's about being a good human and being embedded in a, in a meaningful world. Uh, and a sort of a, a, a sort of a sharing, a truly sharing, truly engaged society looks like. I mean, of course, that's not a right wing vision. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, I've I've I've, 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 I've often thought that there's there's something very there would be something incredibly libertarian in giving everyone the ability to like have the most autonomy over their own life um, in terms of saying okay everyone everyone gets a solar panel like oprah style like you get a solar panel and you get yeah, a solar yeah, panel yeah. and encouraging yeah. as many people as possible yeah. to have community gardens or their own vegetable patches i kind of feel like that's a very right-wing freedom I mean, sort of view you, of things you've made a really 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 important point which is that this is where it all began so the guy that we should have mentioned is john mm. Locke. And you're absolutely right. I mean, it is literally the original liberal vision is that everyone deserves enough land to farm on. That's absolutely right. So in a way, yes, it is a very right-wing vision. It is a sort of vision of freedom that's about autonomy. 
But you can't have freedom without land. No, you're right. I take it back. It is ironically a right wing. It's a, I mean, right wing and left wing is so well, unhelpful anyway. I f- I but I mean, it's more of a, a it's, weird it's, circle thing. Yeah. It's a liberal vision. It's a liberal vision. It is a liberal vision. Yeah. You're right. So, so I have two two final questions for you um, and then um, we can we can wrap up. So um, I was really curious as to your opinions on the, the kind of disappearance or as such of, of the family meal in Britain. And mm, yeah, I, this is just I mean, I can't I, I have no statistics in which to back this up. This is completely mm-hmm. anecdotal conjecture, but I feel like at least. In Britain, we have a lot less of a a routine or a culture that that encourages us to sit yeah. and sit down as a as a family. And and like, having worked in in yeah. Austria and got to know quite a lot of people like around Europe because of that, I've I've seen like how much they put value on that family time, especially yeah. Sundays yeah. Or, or the evenings. Like there yeah. are no shops no, open. There are like, everything yeah. is geared towards ensuring people have that time for their family. And it's yes, yeah, yeah. Why do you think? Why do you think we've lost yeah, that I, in Britain? Yeah, I mean, funnily enough, I wrote about this a lot more in my previous book, Hungry City, um, which you might enjoy, and I'll send you a copy just in case that's the case. Um, but anyway, um, we industrialized two and a half centuries ago, and we did it more well. In you know, we started even earlier than that, three centuries ago. And we did it more earlier and more radically than any other country on earth. Food comes from the land. And food traditions, I mean, they're complex things, um, but they they are to do with a kind of way of life that's to do with what landscape can produce. You know, so that's what traditional food, of course, is, is what your local, your locality can produce, whether it's fish or whether it's animals or whether it's vegetables or pineapples, whatever it is. And then how that then gets kind of elaborated into a sort of a way of life. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating process to watch and to trace, as it were. Um, all cultures through history value food highly because, you know, it, they, they haven't forgotten it was the most valuable thing in our lives. So traditional food cultures still do it. Why don't we, why did we lose our food culture in Britain? A, because of the Industrial Revolution. That was massive. People moved to cities. They could no longer feed themselves. They became dependent on whatever the city could produce. And the cities then began importing food as soon as they could. You know, we became the biggest importers of industrialized food when it became available. So canned food, food from America, and so on and so on. So we were at the forefront always of the industrialized food wave, along with America. Second thing, the French Revolution. So... Um, yeah, I know this is weird, but um, basically, when um, if you think of an intact food culture, it goes from the peasantry to the nobility. So the peasants have their pig pig's head stew or whatever, you know, and then the, the you know the nobility will be eating sort of essence tourine de de, de cochon, you know, with with done with all sorts of peacock feathers coming out of its head or something. And then in between, you've got most people who are basically kind of, or, you know, and indeed in a very traditional society called most people were peasants, but you will, you know, you begin to get an evolving middle class. Um, this happens particularly in Italy and then in France, who are aspiring to eat like the nobles. So they're kind of beginning to ape their sort of, you know, their ways of cooking and boiling and so on. So, so this is a kind of a, what I call a vertical, a vertical culture. This is a healthy culture, but it also exists in music, for example. So you have 
you know, peasant songs with the squeeze box and one guy on a violin. And then you have, you know, kind of Mozart writing for King Leopold, you know, and then in between you've got people kind of learning the piano um, and playing Beethoven, you know, so so it's the same kind of thing. So what happens with, the, so in France, who really evolved, you know, I mean, the, all the terminology, as you still know, you've worked in restaurants, it all tends to be French. I mean, the French invested, invented restaurants, basically. And so called haute cuisine, which is, you know, cooking at a high level, i.e. for nobles. French Revolution comes along. There's this incredible tradition of amazing cooking that is unlike cooking anywhere else. It's highly refined. It's based on sources and so on. Uh, these chefs are all out of a job. So some of them set up restaurants in Paris. So this is the beginning of the, of the restaurant revolution, although restaurants had been invented before. That's a fascinating story as well. Uh, and it comes from restaurant, which just means bouillon, which is, was like a restorative broth that people were drinking. Anyway, that's one thing. But a lot of them also go on a... No, sorry, no, I, just, I mean, just, as I said... I just had to do the, the <laughs> connection in my head, you know. <laughs> yeah, so restaurant, yeah. so restorative. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what a, was... <laughs> it, it was, it was like, yeah, it was like medicine. That's where the word comes from, exactly. But there's also diaspora chefs who go all over Europe and they start cooking in the great houses of Europe. Now, this is what the great, uh, brilliant book I also recommend by uh, Stephen Mannell called All Manners of Food. There's so many books to recommend. Anyway, um, he talks about the decapitation of food culture. So if the noble culture, you know, the head, if you like, the aspiring up towards is replaced by a foreign culture, you kill the food culture. So we've now got British food culture. We lost our peasantry because we industrialised. Now we've lost our noble top because we import French chefs to do all our cooking for us. It's dead at the bottom and it's dead at the top. So it just dies. French, English food culture dies. Um, and it just struggles on in these tiny little pockets where people still make stilts and cheese or they still make, you know, pork pies. But, but the whole, the grandness and the scope of it shrivels. Um, and it's fascinating watching it being sort of slowly rediscovered now and kind of going, hey, come on, guys, we've got amazing produce in this country. You know, we've got amazing food traditions. We just forgot them for, you know, 150 mm. years. Let's get them back. So so that those are the principal reasons. Oh, and one other massive That's thing, right. sorry. America, the so-called special relationship. So basically, we we, during the 20th century, so America evolved and invented the modern food industry. It all happened mostly in Chicago to do with um, industrial livestock production. Okay, the French invented canning, but, you know, um, they kind of, they invented the whole kind of big corporations doing all the logistics and all of that stuff and, you know, big, big um, companies. Uh, and there's a few in the uh, in the Europe as well. So there's, uh, there's um, uh, Danone, uh, you know, this sort of Nestle, you know, Nestle in, invented a process to, con you know, to, to can milk. Uh, of course, Nestle is condensed milk um, and Unilever and so on. Um, but um, so but our special relationship in America um, meant that, you know, when kind of fast food got invented over there, which is all about, I mean, again, another one more amazing book I'm going to recommend, Harvey Levenstein's Paradox of Plenty, which is an absolutely brilliant uh, description of the evolution of 20th century food culture through industrialization, through marketing, through advertising, through this idea of a good life. It's all about convenience. It's all about driving into a drive-through hamburger joint and all this kind of stuff. Of course, you know, what they had over there was more land and therefore more meat than anywhere in Europe had ever been able to produce. 
And of course, we are predisposed to want to eat meat. And this is another complexity in, in that we face now. So um, the whole fast food revolution and, of course, supermarkets, the evolution of supermarkets, which is basically the idea that you don't walk into the centre of the city to buy food, but you drive out of it to a box. Um, and Britain was the only country in Europe that didn't put anti-supermarket legislation in place when they came over in the 70s. And, and hence, our city centres just went, just kind of collapsed early. And we embraced the fast food thing. And we still eat, uh, Britain eats more ready meals than the rest of Europe put together. Yeah, I, think, I think you said in the book, it's, it's uh, a, I think, I can't remember what year it was, but we ate half of all of the ready meals in Europe. Yeah, mm. yeah. We, 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 we don't cook. We've forgotten what food is. We've lost our traditional food culture. All our posh food's French. And uh, we're in love with America, or we were. Um, and, you know, so we embraced fast food and highly processed food more than any other nation in Europe. And of course, that was partly because we'd already lost our traditional food culture. We spend less time cooking than any other nation in Europe. We spend less on food than any other nation in Europe. We're fatter than any other nation in Europe. We're, mm, we're in trouble. I mean, that, that, yeah. But those are, those are the reasons why. It's, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, that... To, to trace how we got here. So with all that in mind, perhaps in a way that we haven't discussed yet, what, how would you suggest that people start to try and build their or rebuild or reimagine their own relationship with food? Like one of the things I'm, I'm trying to think yeah. about in my book is it's all well and good trying to imagine ways that we can, on a really macro scale, change the world. But I think one of the things yeah. that it has to start with, and something that I, I kind of took from reading um, Naomi Klein's This Changes Everything and the Extinction Rebellion yeah. handbook, actually, was that the yeah. more local it is, the, the, the closer yeah. to home that you begin, yeah. the easier it is to inspire people to change. Absolutely right. So, so, so what I love about food, I mean, what don't I love about food? I mean, it's just there's nothing not to love about mm. good food. Um, is that you can change immediately what you do, and it has a real effect. So, for example, if you're eating industrially produced meat of any kind, stop. Just stop. Um, well, how, do, how, um, do, how do you look out for that? So, say you're in the supermarket, right? What, what do you need to look for to if, make sure you're not? If a chicken is on sale for three pounds fifty, don't buy it. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, I mean, you is know, there like a la the, is there labeling the, or um, the, something you should look out for? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 when I'm buying meat and dairy, in fact, all food, I mean, I buy the most expensive I can afford because, because, particularly in a supermarket, if you are going to buy, you know, and ideally buy from someone you actually know, but I mean, I realize everyone's got different energy levels for this, but you know, or just get an organic box deemed delivered, but you know, go for organic. And spend as much as you can afford. And if you do that, you'll avoid the really, really, you know, what I call chicken gulags, you know, I mean, basically kind of 150,000 birds without enough space. I mean, we do have higher standards in this country than in many countries. But, you know, of course, as we know, we're leaving the EU and we're about to do a deal with America. And as we know, they chlorinate chicken because their space standards are so bad that basically the chickens are all diseased by the time they hit the kind of production line. So chlorine kills the disease. You know, I mean, it's just, you don't want to go there. So I would say, and let's put it more positively than that. Let's say, go for um, as unprocessed food as you can, as, as fresh food as you can, um, as seasonal food as you can, and as plant-based as you can. You know, and so we're, we're talking about shifting from 
And, you know, I mean, we can all make shifts in our lives. You know, I mean, I when I started writing about food, I was I was still the kind of person that eats ready meals, you know, not all the time, but I, I did probably eat one or two a week. I haven't eaten one in a decade. I just, because I just, you know, and, and the last time I did eat one, it just didn't taste like food to me, you know, but I mean, that, but, but, but I love cooking, so it's not an issue for me. And I don't have five kids to feed and blah, blah, blah. So it's always just do what you can. But, but Michael Pollan puts this very well. He basically says, eat food, not too much, mostly plants, you know. And if you just, I mean, by the way, this you will save just so much on your food bills if you shift mostly towards eating a plant-based diet. So, for example, I live making, I love making chili con carne. Um, I mean, I, I sort of, it's quite interesting. I, I used, I would have put, you know, two packets of mints in to make a sort of a big bowl enough to sort of have a have friends over and then free some, etc. And I'm gradually reducing the amount of mints I use. And actually now I often just don't put the meat meat bit in. And I just, you know, I've discovered black beans taste so meaty, you kind of wouldn't know the difference. And I put a bit of marmite in and you, you can create the umami taste in other ways. Someone I interviewed actually, who used to do vegetarian kind of, box. Someone I, I, I interviewed in Canada when I was living there who did uh, vegetarian yeah. box deliveries and, and things like that. She used yeah. cauliflower a lot. And... Oh my goodness, cauliflower. Oh, sorry. I mean, just roasting. Sorry, no, that's, interrupting. That, that was but yeah, just I mean, my main point, just the cauliflower. She used that as a substitute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, just and roasting cauliflower, by the way. I mean, I, I just, who knew? I only discovered this recently. You cut it up into florets, chuck a little bit of olive oil over it. So I was suddenly turning into a cookery <laughs> program and just bake it until it's kind of going dark brown. And maybe even a little charred at the edges. It's it's so delicious. It's off the scale delicious. So yes, I mean, moving more towards these kinds of foods, you will save money. I mean, I just don't eat highly processed food at all. I mean, I think the nearest I come to highly processed food is yogurt. <laughs> you know, yogurt from a supermarket. I mean, I might occasionally buy you know shop bought hummus you know but that's about it everything else i just buy vegetables i buy some fish i buy some some you know again as expensive as good as organic as i can find um dairy uh you know i mean i i would find it very difficult to give up dairy so i i i've cut radically cut down my meat in order to allow myself to have kind of more dairy because i you know chuck butter in something chuck cheese in something and life's just better um plus i have very good friends who run a very good cheese shop so it'd be very difficult to stop eating cheese but anyways i said i don't i don't think we do need to stop eating these things so it's basically just get actively engaged become what carlo petrini calls a co-producer you know which is basically don't just passively unthinkingly eat food uh but actually start thinking about it start working out okay is this is this making the world from which this food came better or worse is this landscape being looked after or is a landscape being denuded? Are chickens being abused or is a chicken having a happy life? Are people, you know, human human farmers being paid enough to produce this food or are they just being treated as quasi-slaves, which is endemic in the food industry? So, yes, it's becoming conscious. But then when you start getting engaged in it, the, the payoff is you will spend you will spend less. If you start cooking more you will spend so much less i mean it's it's insane to eat takeaways and and i mean you know the, um, these things cost so much and you know 
you know, if you if you order a takeaway curry, you know that that unless they explicitly say this is organic chicken, it won't be. It, it never is the good stuff unless it says it's the good stuff. So, and try to get to know your producers and try to support local shops and try to eat more seasonally and regionally. So, I mean, also, tragically, you know, uh, you have to be careful when you're drinking things like almond milk and eating avocados because quite often these are also contributing to ecological catastrophe or social catastrophe. So, um, you know, stick to what you know and, and but enjoy it and get into it and make it put it back at the centre of your life and and show you love through food, I would say. Cook for your friends, cook for your family, make it the centre of your day and the world will be a better place. Well, hopefully uh, this podcast has encouraged more people to take the <laughs> Cytopian red pill. <laughs> Which is well, organic, I mean, of course. Well, I the Cytopian yeah. delicious meal. <laughs> but yeah, this is but yeah this has been a yeah this has been an absolute pleasure um i really really enjoyed it uh so so i gotta say thanks um thanks for for doing this thanks so much josh well we've been going in now for about an hour so people are still listening i'm 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 grateful to them and i'm delighted and i hope this does inspire everyone to go off and make a better world through food because we all have to Mm. eat so you know the, the opportunity is there at least three times a day <laughs> oh what a great what a great way to finish <laughs> thanks so much for listening if you haven't already and you enjoyed this episode please subscribe to this podcast and to our mailing list and don't forget my book brexit the establishment civil war is now available on amazon for pre-order you'll find the link in the description below along with links to everything we've discussed in this podcast until next time thanks for listening 